0: Lord, thank you for um, a truth to rest upon in an age when uh, truth feels so elusive. and just something that is solid, grounding foundation for us as a people to orient our entire lives around. The person in the work of Jesus, the presence of the Holy Spirit illuminating the scriptures in our hearts and lives. And I pray that this morning, that's what this is. It's not a knowledge-based lesson, but it's a time to come together as a people to hear what you're doing and what you want to do in our lives and in our church. Be present, work and move in this place in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. How many of you guys like a project? Uh, depends on what the project is. Uh, <laughs> Such a loaded question on a Sunday morning. (laughs) What's your favorite? You can just throw it. What's your favorite part about a project? (laughs) Finishing it. (laughs) Completing it. Amen. So you don't like projects. You like things that get done. I'm sorry for anybody that married that person. (laughs) My dad. And... Over a decade of marriage now, 13 years, I think. You lose track somewhere in the teens. I have no idea. Um, My wife and I have bought and sold, I think, around five homes. And there are two homes in particular in my life that stand out. One of them is as old as dirt, Uh, older than all of you. It was built in 1906. Uh, Not only was it built in 1906, but it was um, larger than any American family needs to live in. I mean, the thing was like 3,000 square feet of project. 3,000 square feet of project. And my wife walks into a house like this, and I'm just gonna be honest, and she's like, oh my goodness, the character. She just, (laughs) she just got done, you know, watching the latest Chip and Joanna, and she's like, oh, the potential, and she's walking around. And I'm gonna let you guys in on a little secret. Uh, When we looked at this house, um, I knew it was out of our budget, but I had to appease her, like to show her I was going to give it a shot. So I'm like, yeah, babe, all the things we can do in this place, that can come down, that can come down, and we can do that. Fully knowing, this was, you know, years ago, there's not a chance on earth uh, that they would accept an offer of almost 80000 less than what they were asking. Um, they did. <laughs> We were sitting at Terrebonne Depot after church, and at that time, uh, a good friend of ours, Scott Kirkshank, who we did some uh, real estate work with, he texted me, and I went, oh, no. <laughs> She's like, we didn't get the house? I'm like, no, the other thing. <laughs> when I say a project, um, we, most of the rooms didn't even have heat running to them. They, they froze on the inside. This thing was a project. Now, um, if you know me, I don't like projects. I don't like especially unfinished projects. And this house, all it was, was an unfinished project. And she didn't help. I'd come home and there'd be, I'm not kidding, a sledgehammer through a wall. Be like, what's going on? She's like, I wanted to see what was behind it. If we can move it. There might be shiplap. There was in some of it. And also, like, newspaper from the 20s that was used as insulation for the house. And like, we're going to put our kids up here and they're going to sleep in this room now that has newspaper insulation. And and this house, not not kidding, just everywhere I looked, it was unfinished project. And unfinished projects aren't the worst, especially if you have the means, which we didn't always, because we bit off more than we could chew at times, or the ability, uh, my contracting abilities came from YouTube, (laughs) so so they did not exist until I moved into this house and started putting things crooked up, that's just the way life is, okay, so that's how it went, and we lived in this unfinished project, and I found it to be at times um, frustrating, exhausting, uh, to the point to where I would just kind of want to go in a different room or like, yeah, you can get that big banner and we'll just hang it over the wall that has a huge hole in it and nobody will ever know, and we'll put a Band-Aid on it. And so unfinished projects, um, they're rough. They're rough. And what does that have to do with Acts? Well, we're about to embark on an unfinished story in Acts. And the way in which Luke is writing... It's not like a a diary that he's writing to us, but he is giving us a historical theological narrative. Say that again. A historical theological narrative of this continued work. When I say continued work, meaning from the Old Testament on of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And what this work is that he's doing and that he's beginning in in this world at this time is that of the church. So as we look at Acts and we read Acts, we have to realize that we are being invited into an unfinished project. And you have to be okay with that. As a church, as a people, we play a part in participating And this beautiful drama that God has initiated and said, welcome, come on in. I want you to be a part of my kingdom, and I want you to participate in it. And it's an unfinished, messy, at times incredibly frustrating, with huge mountains of joy and valleys of hardship. This is what we're going to embark on, and what we've been inviting, invited into, and it's incredibly intentional. So what I'm going to do is I want to open up in Acts 1. I want to read the first few verses here this morning. We're going to get all the way to 11, I think. They didn't put a timer up. <laughs> I haven't spoken in like 13 weeks, so you're in for it. All right, Acts 1, 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus. I have dealt with, now before I say anything, in the first book, O Theophilus. Luke has been commissioned by... This man, Theophilus, we don't actually know everything pertaining to who he was or what he did, but he had uh, some kind of wealth about him that he was able to fund Luke to travel alongside Paul, to interview people, to ask them questions about Jesus, and he is documenting to Theophilus all the things about what? He says, all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. First book. Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until, I circled this word in my Bible, because it's a transition point. The day when he was taken up. We're going to read about that here in Acts, what we call the ascension. Then it says, then it says it's really important. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Okay. If you open your Bible, and at the top of your Bible, in the book of Acts, it has a heading. The heading probably says, the Acts, and then it goes on to say, of the okay. If you want to, you can cross that out. This is not the Acts of the apostles. This is the Acts of Jesus. Theophilus is saying, or Paul, excuse me, Luke is writing to Theophilus saying, I am writing to you telling you the works that Jesus not only began to do, but the things that he continued to do through the Holy Spirit at the hands of the apostles. This is incredibly important this morning as we study the book of Acts and something that you have to keep in mind, that Luke has written a two-part story or a two-volume set. First, Luke, all the things that Jesus began to do. Then, all the things that Jesus continued to do through the Holy Spirit. Now, continue to read this. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the Kingdom of God. Does that phrase ring a bell to anybody? Y'all hear through Matthew? Did you ever get tired of Carson, Michael, or myself talking about the kingdom of God? I mean, that's all we talked about in Matthew. In fact, in Luke, he mentions this phrase, kingdom of God, 44 times. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, 44 times. Now, what's intriguing is there's a link that's happening From Luke to Acts, which is also linked all the way back to Genesis, from what God began, first started, in creating the heavens and the earth, placing man in the garden to rule to reign over the kingdom that he had started. We'll get into some of that. But here we see a connecting point twice, twice in Acts chapter 1. Luke is going to mention the kingdom of God. Twice, at the end of Acts, Acts 28, he's going to mention the kingdom of God. Now, any good speaker or teacher who's worth their salt in anything, if they want to get a point across, they're going to tell you what they talked about. They're going to sprinkle in in the middle just a whole lot of other maybe stories, analogies, or, I don't know, boring speech that you kind of tune out of. And then they're going to try to reel you back in Back to their main point at the end, which is precisely what Luke does here in Acts. And there's a reason and a purpose for this this morning as we study Acts. It's a continuation of the story of God talking about his kingdom. So, if you want to know what this is all about, if you really want to understand Acts, do you know where to start? Not Acts 1. But Luke 1. If you want to, you can turn over there. Luke chapter 1 says, Inasmuch, in verse 1, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So, He's saying to Theophilus, this stuff that you're hearing about, this movement of Jesus. Luke is writing sometime after the death, resurrection, ascension, and probably much of what's already begun to happen in Acts because word has spread abroad to others about this Jesus. And so Luke says to compile a narrative of the things that were done amongst us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So what Luke is doing in Luke 1 is he's giving a preface, an understanding for Theophilus. And he says, this is all that Jesus has begun to do. What did Jesus begin to do? There's a slide I'm going to have up here for you. And what Luke talks about is the good news of Jesus, which is talking about the kingdom of God. What did, what did Jesus begin to do in the gospel? The gospel accounts that we read, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then also John there. He, he Jesus, restores God's kingdom over the world. This was actually something the Israelites should have been participating in the Old Testament when you read their stories, to be a light to all the nations, to invite people in underneath the rule of God. Ever since it was wrestled away or given away, when like Michael talks about this word sin, we chose for ourselves to determine right or wrong. In Jesus, in Jesus, there's this restoring of God's kingdom over the world. Jesus called Israel Israel to live under God's reign by following him. This is happening in Luke. You can see distinct moments in which he's dealing with the Pharisees and the religious rulers and the high priests, and there's this call for Israel. He even weeps over them because they reject his presence. They reject what he's offering, but he's calling them to follow under his reign. Jesus then is enthroned as king through his death, and resurrection we looked at this in depthly, as we looked at Matthew. We looked at this in depth, as we have talked about the resurrection, but Jesus is then enthroned as we sing through his death and resurrection. And finally, repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. This is where Luke kind of leaves us hanging in Luke 24. He says, you're going to tell this story. What is this story? I like how, I believe it's N.T. Wright puts it, this is the story of God become king in Jesus and how God brings a people unto himself. When we look at Acts, this is the story that we're talking about here this morning. Jesus' continued work through the Spirit, his kingdom present, bringing people into it. Scott McKnight wrote, the story is that in Jesus, God now rules. And God's kind of ruling is saving, rescuing, atoning, justifying, and reconciling. The cross and the resurrection redefine kingdom in all directions. Israel is not the same. Obedience is not the same. Love is not the same. Peace is not the same. Justice is not the same. Because of what Jesus has done, he's brought something entirely new in. Now, in Western culture, is new good or bad? It's good. We have been trained to think through great marketing tactics that new is really great. In fact, when the new one of these comes out, everybody's kind of like jonesing for it, right? Right? Or when the new, <laughs> it's because you've been taught very well, April. The landline. Newness, I'm sorry, newness. Newness in our culture is equated with good, with great, with progress, with the next best thing. We associate when we hear the new thing is coming to jump on board with it. However, in ancient culture, newness was taught to be looked at with suspicion. It was taught to be looked at with some kind of skeptical lens in which you actually question is this thing going to be good? Is it going to be bad? Is it going to help? Is it going to benefit us? We weren't, they weren't, pardon me, as quick to just simply accept something new into their lives. And this would make for a challenging aspect in this fresh work of Jesus because. How many would have perceived what has just happened is something brand new is taking place. And I would prefer to talk about something fresh over something brand new. Why is that? Luke is going to painstakingly go to great lengths and efforts to connect the story of old, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the work of Jesus and what he has done. And he's going to do a lot of work all throughout Acts to show us how this, this is a fresh work, a fresh as Jesus talks about, rooted, rooted in the original story of God. It's why you get the speech of Stephen in Acts chapter seven. It's so long. And if you know your Jewish history, you're like, I've heard these stories a million times. Why is Luke pointing this out? He's making a point to all of his readers. This is rooted in the old. So listen up. This is God's plan. So hear me out. And there's gonna be clues and hints all throughout this story as we read it in Acts of God's work. So let's read a little bit of it. In verse six of Acts one, it says, so when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? We're gonna dissect this in just a little bit, but this was a huge hope and it was a loaded question. All of Israel, those in the Jewish faith, were eagerly anticipating this throne to come up out of Jerusalem and it would emanate across the entire earth where the rule of God would be placed and that their enemies from Rome and from Babylon and from everywhere else would be trampled out and justice and grace and peace and mercy would be ushered in. That is one context in which people would be thinking about an established rule for Israel. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, "Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Jesus, who has taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." This story that Acts is continuing is continuing, as I said a little earlier, the story of God founded in Genesis one in which God creates and he places humans to rule. They reject his rule. They assert their rule because they think they'd be better at determining right or wrong. This rebellion, this rejection of God and his way then causes them to be cast outside of this garden or temple place in which God and man were dwelling together. And then you can read the ups and downs in the Old Testament of the narrative of God and restoring some kind of kingdom. And the question is, is what is this kingdom of God all about. So this week, we're going to briefly just kind of re-hit some points on kingdom. Next week, we're going to have a fun little ditty section on the spirits, So that'll, that'll be good. And then the week after that, we're going to look at the church and the kingdom and see some distinctions actually within that. But this idea of kingdom means there's a space and a place, right? A space, a land, and a place as well as a conduct, a culture, a way to be. Look, in America, you may or may not realize this, but you are in a space and a place, and you dress, talk, act, kind of look, and do things a certain way because of the law of the land, the rule that's come down, and then just culture influencing you, telling you this is right, this is wrong, you should do this, you shouldn't do Every kingdom to exist is going to have that kind of atmosphere—a place where there's land, physicality, right? Also, a rule and a way to be. And God had initially set this up, reigning over humans who were to rule over the earth and to partner with us to rule. But everything went completely off when we chose for ourselves and human flourishing. Ceased in a sense, it was broken and harmed. Now, what this did was for the Israelites, it would set up something in their hearts this longing for his rule, his reign, his kingdom. And Jesus, his contemporaries, they knew, they knew that the creator God intended to bring justice and peace to the world here and now. And so the big question was, when is this going to happen? So look at our text, and I hope this brings some clarity and excites us a little bit, and then we'll kind of close out with some final thoughts here this morning. It says, once again in verse 6, when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But, and then he kind of gives this plan of what's going to happen. Now, just prior to that, we read here in Acts, and we know from the gospel accounts, Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection with his disciples doing what? Speaking about the kingdom of God. If you had a 40-day class with Jesus, are you going to learn some things? Yeah, you're going to learn some things. He's going to talk to you. He's going to share with you. He's going to proclaim about the kingdom and what's going to happen. And so the disciples, they're in this class. Now, if you read throughout the Gospels, at times the disciples can be a little dense, correct? Like, uh, hey, Jesus, these people don't want us in their town. Are you ready to call down fire or what? Like, is, that, is that your plan? Oh, guys, no, you don't. you don't. Get it. You don't get it. And prior to this death, resurrection of Jesus, I can excuse some of the disciples' behavior and knowledge level concerning the kingdom of God. But at this point, they have had 40 days where Jesus has done this primary thing speaking about the kingdom of God. And so they look at Jesus and they're like, yeah. When are you? going to bring this about now there's two lines of thinking one that's fairly traditional and one that i would never seek to fully leave or by any means minimize but i want to give you a second thought process to just think about to maybe cause your mind to go oh that's very interesting the first idea is that the disciples just quite frankly still don't get the kingdom jesus we're ready for you Are you you just here now setting up the throne? Are we ready to like grab the swords and conquer and take everybody out? Isn't that your way, Jesus? And he's like, guys, was that my way just like 10 weeks ago? No, I was on a cross. I was dead and I resurrected and I showed you a subversive kingdom. I showed you a completely upside down kingdom. I showed, showed you a new way to be. Is the plan all of a sudden just going to flip flop and change? And I speak of it in that term just to kind of like irk maybe some of us a little bit because it's like, well, yeah, why why would the disciples continue to think like that? Why are they even asking this question here and now? Or would it be okay to think about this question like this? Maybe you have a great leader, maybe it's a coach, um, a political leader that you're like ready to get behind. Pastoral leadership, and they go, This is what we're going to do. And they lay out this amazing plan. What would your question be? When are we going to get started? Right? We're eager. When is this going to take place? When are we going to participate in this? When are we going to get involved in this? And what's really interesting. When you read Acts, and the rest of Scripture for that matter, a lot of times it has a way of answering itself if you just pick up on the clues of the author who is writing. I think this is going to be so important as we go through Acts to be detail-oriented because what Luke is going to do is he's going to drop these nuggets right after they ask this question. And so you can look at it as kind of a question of ignorance if you want to today. Hey, when are you coming back? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons and like just Jesus is aloof and he's out. Or it's, hey, when are we going to participate in this? Not yet, but soon. Why why would I share that with you guys? Well, Jesus says there's actually some things that have to happen. You're going to receive power from on high. What does that mean? Holy Spirit has to come. Then he says, you're going to actually go be my witnesses, both proclaiming and living in a way that draws people in to who I am. And then he says, where? It's going to begin from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, it was very common thought in that day and prior that the coming of the kingdom would coincide with the coming of the Spirit. Now, as Western evangelicals not rooted in Judaism, we probably had no idea that that was even a common thought. That these two things would go hand in hand. Let me share some scriptures with you guys about this this morning. In Joel 2 28, it says, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your old men shall dream dreams your young men shall see visions even on male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit Sounds familiar? It's because Peter does that. He shares that precisely in Acts chapter 2 in his speech about what's happening. Ezekiel 39:28 Then he brought me to the inner court through the south gate he measured the south gate as on the same size as the other this is the side Oh my goodness, that is the wrong scripture. That was was chapter 40. 39, 28 through 29, chapter 39. It says, Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations, and then assembled them in their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. I will not hide my face anymore from them. I will pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Isaiah 44, three through five. I will pour out on the thirsty land and streams on the dry land. I will pour my spirit upon your offering and my blessing upon your descendants. And finally, Isaiah 32, 15 through 20. Until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness. Righteous abide in fruitful fields and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, secure dwelling, quiet, resting places. It'll then be the forest for falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you shall sow beside all waters who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. (sighs) Uh, Prophets, so weird. What are they saying? Well, they're declaring when the spirit comes, the kingdom has come. Do, Do you see that? And then what is actually being told to us here in Acts chapter one and chapter two? Jesus says, wait to receive power on high. And the spirit comes. And then what are they to do? They're to witness and declare his justice, his mercy, his peace, his goodness, inviting people to be participants in his kingdom. We're seeing as Jesus, I think, would be showing us here, the very fulfillment of with him has come the kingdom. And Luke is trying to reiterate this using Old Testament references and scriptures saying this is happening now. In Luke 17, 20 through 21, it says, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That's the message that we're gonna see in Acts over the next 30-some weeks. His kingdom come, and he's coming to you, his spirit filling us. And as the Lord reigns inside of a person, that person is given a whole new agenda. I'll leave you with this last thought. It'd be like getting a set of glasses if you were blind, that you can then put on and fully see. It wouldn't even be like it's kind of fuzzy and I see things as they should be, but not quite. But when we come under his kingship and his rulership, all of a sudden we have a whole new way to look at the world, a whole new way to look at politics, a whole new way to look at our neighbor, a whole new way to look at the outcast, the marginalized, the broken. A way in which it says, walk in how Jesus walked, and how Jesus lived. We're invited into this kingdom as we look in Acts, and it's a cross-shaped kingdom. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, a king who dies on a cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. And Acts is going to follow that story. People just giving things away to fill and bless others. Preaching and teaching of the good news, acts of generosity and love, truly what I believe as the world had not seen, as historians of that day would quote, the Christians, they love the people that nobody loves. They take in the kids that nobody would take in. They were revolutionizing the way in which people were living because the Spirit of God was in them. This is an incredible story that we get to be called into and be participants of and not to ignite us, excite us, and move in us. And it's going to look different in me than it's going to look in you as God has gifted you differently than he's gifted me. And he's given you different passions and desires than he's given me. But yet we all come together and play a part in this drama that God has played out for us. And he says, I love you, I care for you, I've accepted you, I've brought you in, And now go live outward to the rest of the world. And we're going to see it happen in Acts. And we're going to see it happen in our lives individually. And I pray and have been praying that it happens in our church throughout this time as we preach through this and continues on. Let's pray. God, thank you for your written word that invites us into a story that's bigger than ourselves, reminds us of that truth pray that this morning you begin to individually lay on our hearts and our lives how you want us to participate in your kingdom and what that might look like. Be with us to we respond to you in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before we sing some songs, just a couple of things. Um, one, one question I do want to leave you with. If you're a Christian, follower of Jesus, how is the Holy Spirit working in your life? to encourage kingdom activity. And if you don't know this morning, that's okay. As we study through Acts, we're going to see lots of ways in which this orthopraxy, like Tarson talked about last week, plays out. Um, But I also suggest that you ask God, you wait on God, and then you act. And then you act. Lord, You're calling us to be a part of something wonderful and beautiful. And we're messy people. But you've invited us into this. How might I, not just my church or the larger church, how might I be a kingdom agent in this community? Loving, I I love this. And I'm just gonna call it out because I saw the other day. a post, you guys may or may not know who Brenda is. She lives downtown. And she is... um, man, that's just like, like all over sometimes, right? We live downtown. And this person posted a picture with their arms around her. And Brenda brought them flowers because they did something generous and kind to her. Do you know how most people look at Brenda? A certain finger. I'm just gonna be honest. And it's super sad. And yet these people just showed love and generosity. And I saw a smile on Brenda's face that I've only seen a handful of times in my life. I just bring that out because she is a community fixture that people know about. And how we treat her is kind of like this. Hope somebody loves her. I want to see people from our church going, it's us that are going to love her. It's us that are going to care for her. It's us that are going to go and care for those that are outside of and weird and awkward and we just don't get it at times. And it's going to be us that love in that way. You don't have money, that's fine. You don't need it. Love them. Care for them. I have a lot of other musings I'd love to share with you from my time away. I'll be able to do that over the next few weeks. But I want you to be creative in how you invite people into the story.